Welcome to this Nat Alliance Now COVID-19 Conversations podcast. I am your host, Mitch Dunford. I'm delighted to have two very talented gentlemen with us today to continue the discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic. In this two-part podcast series, Paul Martin and Paul Burkett talk about some of the evolving coverage forms issues related to the pandemic. All right, without any further ado, let me turn uh, the time over to you, Paul, to uh, to host the, the rest of this podcast. Okay, thank you, Mitch, very much, and welcome, Paul. We're glad you're on. Um, I wanted to introduce the purpose of this, this podcast, why we thought it was important for National Alliance participants, members, those folks to, to really understand what we're trying to do here. As the COVID-19 crisis continues, you've already begun to see uh, that there's articles and news stories about attorneys and lawsuits and policies and lots of questions flying around. And while we can discuss the technical aspects of those, and, and we're going to do some of that today, the news is going to go on and on. And I thought maybe folks needed to be equipped with some understanding of the legal issues, some of the real critical uh, problems this can create for insurance professionals. And I thought it'd be easier to digest the news as it comes in in the coming weeks and months. As you begin to hear stories and read the news uh, about what's going on, that you could interpret it properly and understand the consequences of that. And then what's kind of what's next and and kind of be ahead of the game. So um, we've asked Paul Burkett, super talented guy. He's got some great stuff he's going to share with us today, but I'm going to prompt him with us some questions about this whole thing that's going on and the insurance implications and let him really just share with us from his experience and ex his expertise what, uh, what, we can, what we need to know. So Paul, if you wouldn't mind, let's start off. Let me start off with a question. This is unprecedented, of course, and it's going to affect, of course, business income, which is the, the focus of what we're going to talk about today. But it all comes down to this virus, this pandemic of a virus. Explain to us kind of why this definition of what's covered and what's not. And let's start off with a definition of what a virus is and, and why that's important. Great, great item. It, it falls into uh, broad categories and it goes back to probably our first initial item is what's a pollutant. And a pollutant has in the past has a definition that have been used across practically every coverage form, including property forms. But a pollutant uh, has not referenced in the past fungus, mold, bacteria, viruses, and other microbiological material. So the element is we're into a world of SARS. And if you remember back in 2006, we had a SARS uh, pandemic. We've also had the Spanish flu pandemic. We've had the H1N1 epidemic. We didn't have a pandemic for the H1N1 and the avian flu was an epidemic, not a pandemic. So pandemic creates a uh, different dynamic. Epidemic is more regional in approach where pandemic is a larger group across the entire world. And because of it, it uh, has a problem to indicate that we can't contain it in terms of normal processes. There aren't normal vaccines that are out there that are not normal procedures. And so through that came out a different approach and a business-like approach. And I'll call it the China model. And the China model was you shut everything down and go at it. Uh, we've learned subsequently that maybe not as rigid as the China model won't work, but it is one of those elements that will be here and will not go away. Uh, we're gonna have a pandemic, we're gonna have epidemics, they're gonna continue because we're a human race of significant population 
and uh, elements are going to happen. And the element that occurred in this specific one was, uh, as we've been told by the China government, that it was a situation of the wet markets in Wuhan where animal human interface created a situation of a virus that mutated and attacked the human body. Turns out right now in the marketplace, we're being told there are about four different strains of this. One strain is the one that primarily attacks the lungs and other attacks the heart system. And then we've had some minor situations attacking young children through this. So there's some multiple items that are being looked at. And through that in the press, we're hearing about items of how do you protect yourself? What should you do? And then through that comes the question of, do we need to close down our public space? Do we need to close down the community? Should we not allow groups more than 10 people to meet? Should we cancel events such as state fairs? and all of that. So that's what sort of came out of this as a response to the element of a pandemic that went across items, uh, multiple areas. But what it does is it comes back to us on a coverage item and saying, okay, what do our coverage forms say? And what do they have in terms of discussion about that? And that's where it puts us into the issue of how do we handle this as a claim scenario? So that's sort of the broad overview of what is a pandemic. And what occurs to us in terms of that, think of it as a pollutant, but a pollutant with a very specific definition. Good, thank you. So I know agents, this is one of the first things I know agents particularly are concerned about is the as the news of this, then the potential interface with insurance contracts, is, as more and more customers are talking about this, they're wondering, well, how should I handle it? So let's talk about some of those issues of really their errors and omissions issues that agencies need to be considering as their customers call in and report a claim? Well, we've got two primary elements we have to deal with. One is what does the coverage form say about reporting? And number two, so what does our agency contract say? And included in that, what do our brokerage agreements say with our wholesalers? So we've got overlays of contractual requirements that are gonna dictate how we handle the claims. Uh, remember, if we are an agent of an insurance company, we have the express authority we have the ratified authority and we also have the implied authority that we have to respond to the claim by sending it to the insurance company immediately. We in essence are the front line for the insurance company and therefore knowledge that we gather from our client is knowledge that the insurance company has. So that means we have to do timely submission of the claim and that's under our agency agreements. And so we must do that. And the client has to say, hey, I, I wanna file a claim. You say, fine, let's file the claim. At which point in time, we do not make any kind of a judgment or a statement about the quality of the claim. What do we think is going to happen from the insurance company? We have no responsibility in that. Our responsibility is solely based upon our agency agreement or our wholesaler agreement, broker agreement to send that forward. Now, if we go one step further, your client is required to comply with the conditions of the insurance contract. And again, in the insurance contract, it describes that you have to give a timely report or a reasonable time report uh, for the claim, whether it's going to be property or whether it's going to be third-party casualty type items. And that application also applies to the workers' compensation, business income, property, or any other kind of line of coverage that you believe has created or triggered coverage for the uh, virus 
the damage that may have been done. But we can't get involved in making the decision about it. We have to remind our client that they're subject to the terms and conditions of the contract they agreed to. And that contract says very precisely what are the duties and responsibilities for reporting the claim. And then we will go ahead and report it as per our requirements within the agency agreement and as well with the agreement that we have with the wholesaler in the brokerage agreement. So that is the duties and responsibilities. We can't go beyond that. And so through that, the big eye has come out with some very specific guidance about how to avoid uh, errors and emissions, and I'll call it a risk reduction or risk prevention item. Remember that the agency is not a party to the contract. All we are is an intermediary. And as an intermediary, we have no duties and responsibilities in the contract. And the contract is between the named insured and the insurance company, and therefore the conditions of the policy dictate how you report a claim. Again, we're not aware, and I'm not, and neither is the big I, of any agency insurance contract, agency contract that we have to do claim investigation. And we run into some regulatory issues. We're licensed as insurance producers. I'm a licensed insurance producer and broker, and I'm also a licensed risk management consultant. So as such, we got to stay true to our licensure. Notice I didn't say I was a licensed claims adjuster. Licensed claims adjuster is a separate item that has the responsibility of doing and making the decisions uh, granted to them as a public adjuster by the insurance company or granted to the employees called the claims representatives. And they are all subject to the Unfair Claims Practice Act in all 50 states that dictate how you handle that. We are not subject to the Unfair Claims Practice Act, though some claim in California we are. I disagree with that opinion because uh, we don't have the licensure to do anything about making decisions about coverages and such not. So words like, well, it'll be denied or blanket denial and other items, we can't make those statements because we're not into the contractual language. So claims management is the carrier's responsibility and it's not our responsibility. And so if a client says, do you think it'll be covered? We just simply say, let's send it in and find out. We don't get involved in that situation. Now, we've had some carriers that have run into some problems, and a couple of them was the state association sent this note to the IIAB. It says, we're being inundated with claims for loss of business income from coronavirus and the civil authority. We cannot keep up with the claims that are coming in, so we're hoping the agents can also help us when they are directly approached by the insured. No, we can't make the determination. That insurance carrier was outside its boundaries, should not have put their agents in any problem with the Unfair Claims Practice Act in their state. So again, the glut of claims are happening. They're going to continue. It's going to tax the system. But here's the key that's the fundamental issue for every insurance carrier claims representative. They have to do an adequate investigation. You're going to see claim denials coming from the insurance company that says there was a pollution exclusion. There was a virus exclusion. There was a exclusion for ordinance or law. There was an exclusion for virus that was on the policy or pandemic that's on the policy. We can't interpret those. Those are the insurance company and those become the basis is that you may see denials. Therefore, we're not responsible for that. That is the insurance company. Now, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go into it. But our role and our sole role is once we get notice of a claim that your client wants to file a claim, we send it immediately to the insurance company, get it in the queue, 
and let it go in there. And our role is to say, it's in the cook in the queue. As soon as we hear anything, you will hear it as, as quickly as they're going to respond to that. So that is part of the errors and emissions reduction process that we have to deal with when looking at our role as licensed insurance producers putting that together. And what will happen on this, unfortunately, is that when the carrier denies, there's a very good chance that we could be sued. And we could be sued under other legal theories, such as the failure to procure requested coverage, misrepresentation of the business income coverage, uh, failure to fulfill the affirmative duty to provide advice to the client about the coverages and the exclusions. All of these are going to be brought out post-loss and are on truth, but they're going to be used uh, by plaintiff's counsel as a way to try to find some coverage because the insurance company is not going to do it. So what we're going to see is a combo. You're going to see some uh, clients suing the insurance company for the breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing bad faith, and you're also going to see lawsuits, they're going to call about the breach of contract. So that's going to be the extra contractual exposure for the insurance company. To put leverage on the insurance company, they're going to sue the agent as well. And to say, okay, you failed to procure the coverage. So you're going to see some simultaneous aspects of that. Talk to us a little bit, if you don't mind. Tell us what's what's already percolating out there with the regulators and those that influence the way this is done there have already been some meetings, have there not, or discussions at oh, like yeah. insurance commissioner level, that kind of thing? Yeah, there really has. And it's really started from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. And they've come out with some statements as uh, individual state divisions of insurance have as well. But the key pandemic issue or concept to the insurance commissioners, they worry about insurance solvency. And the element that they're worried about is other claims that should be legitimately paid and handled are being set aside because of the COVID-19 business interruption claims. And it's being to a point that those claims need to be paid. And the question about is there really any business interruption coverage is still a fundamental question out there. And the other item is a major a majority of the lawsuits are about business interruption claims, which are not business interruption. They're really business income claims and business interruption being a separate coverage. So the question really is, if we have communicable disease exclusions, if we have virus exclusions, if we have pollution exclusions, if we have ordinance and law exclusions, the insurance company is going to go through the process and go ahead and pay if they have the coverage or not pay. And there should be allowed that process. But we have some state legislators that have come out and they wanted to pass laws that said retroactively coverage applies no matter what the conditions of the insurance contract said. And what they were trying to do is circumvent the Article 1 of the Constitution that says the right to private uh, contract exists and you cannot in, in any way legislate and interfere with the private contract item. And so they're trying to do unconstitutional acts. So the NEIC. Uh, and uh, the National Association of Legislators, uh, insurance legislators, have come out and said, we're attacking that fundamental concept. There can't be retroactive coverage. There can't be uh, the element of automatically providing coverage on coverage forms that did not have it brought into it, did not have it as part of the rating methodology, did not intend to create coverage for this kind of a pack pandemic. And their fundamental concern is they don't want to undermine the ability of the insurers to pay other types of claims 
and exacerbate the negative financial and economic impacts. In other words, going after solvency and going after the surplus and uh, taking that surplus away. And that is the principal thrust of NEIC. And what they have done is they're trying to work with Congress to find ways to develop a role for Congress and the federal government, very similar to what we learned in 9-11 for the terrorism endorsement, providing that and finding a way that we could do a backdoor and provide some coverage. Because the other element the NEIC is concerned about, and I don't know if a lot of people paid attention to it, the reinsurers are running scared at this point too. And the reinsurers are going to be looking at treaties and other items and saying to themselves, do we want to stay involved in this kind of a property line or this type of item in the future? what will it do for costs? So the concept is they're attacking both the state legislators about these retroactive acts, and they're also attacking the Congress to say, you need to come up with a pandemic methodology. And that pandemic methodology doesn't have to be just COVID-19, but it could be SARS, it could be Ebola, a breakout. We could have another kind of virus issue in the future. And we need to come up with a pandemic type item like terrorism. And so that's sort of the pressure that's coming from the NEIC. And some of the insurance commissioners are following along with that and agreeing with that and recognizing that their legislatures are a little out of control when they try to do the retroactive. Now, the National Council on Insurance Legislators are now also trying to intervene, and they've come out with some statements, and they basically said, no, retroactive business coverage, it's unconstitutional, and it's an inadmissible policy for economic reasons. And they're saying, we do not want to destabilize a very significant part of our uh, economic Uh, ability to move forward, and that is insurance is an important part of allowing people to take risk, have risk transfer, accept the risk, do not jeopardize this mechanism as it currently is. And because the insurance community is such an important part, don't shut it down. Don't bankrupt it because then you have nothing to replace it. And so the National Council of Insurance Legislatures have been intervening with these legislators, New Jersey, Massachusetts, New York, Ohio, uh, being the principal ones that were trying to lead on this. And it's sort of dying a little bit. But the issue is it's still out there. They want to come back and take care of people, but they don't understand the concept of insurance and the concept of law of large numbers and how we share risk and how the uh, process of rating risk all takes place. And so that's the other side that's taking place, what I'll call the governance side. And then on top of that, we've got individual states coming out with different rules on COVID-19, such as cancellation, non-renewal. Elements uh, have been also coming out from state governments about eviction, eviction requirements. So you're going to see a lot of contractual items like that still continue. But we're seeing less and less than the uh, that we did see uh, probably about four weeks ago. So this is a plus side on that. Good. That's a good recap. Let's um the you, you highlighted this at the beginning, this difference between business income and business interruption. Speak to that and why there is a distinction between those in the marketplace and what agents really need to understand. Okay. First off, we've got the plaintiff's view of the world. The plaintiff's world of views is everything is business interruption. Even though the coverage form says business income or time element, 
uh, and it says extra expense, uh, which are defined terms in the coverage forms. Business interruption was an old term that we used, and it implied just like the old days about all risk. All risk implied everything in the world was covered. Business interruption moved into one of those terms of being too broad, and we needed to have more specificity or definition to look at it. And that's why we've moved away from the business interruption language and we moved to the business income. Most of the standardized coverage forms that we're involved in as licensed insurance producers are standardized coverage forms, and we do not use the word business interruption. However, business interruption terms are still used. And to give you an example of that, Wimbledon had a business interruption coverage form with the pandemic peril on it. Uh, they paid a premium per year, roughly between 20 to $27 million a year for the last five years. Uh, they closed and shut down Wimbledon and did not allow the tournament to take place. And Lloyd's of London paid them $140 million because they had a business interruption based on a pandemic. And so business interruption implies broader coverage where business income says, no, there's a set process, a set methodology. What's the definition? Net income before tax plus continuing operating expenses, which can include payroll. And then it comes in and says extra expense is those costs during the period of restoration. And it has to be from a cessation of operations or partial cessation of operations. So there's all these defined terms that come with the business income where the business interruption really works off of a is it a covered peril or not? That's what it really looks at. And the devil's in the detail in trying to make that analysis. And so our challenge is to deal with education. And the education is plaintiff's counsel calls everything business interruption, does not understand what the coverage forms are. And the coverage forms are going to be the key that triggers all of the coverages. So we know that we got standardized coverage forms that are out there that have been promulgated by the ISO, the AIS, and the MSO. We know that there's some standardized business coverage forms which say 12 actual loss sustained for 12 months subject to is it a covered location is it a covered peril did we have physical injury business income and extra expense is what we have under the iso form time element is the language on the aais form business income and extra expense on the mso do you see anywhere that you see business interruption it doesn't exist in the standardized coverage forms we have so legal arguments are going to vary because they're going to have to be dependent upon the exclusions, the endorsements, the limitations, and the insurance language that we're going to have in these standardized coverage forms. And there's a belief that these standardized coverage forms by the insurance companies are very clear and precise in that. However, you know, we have others that think, well, maybe it's not. Maybe it should be a broader item. But if we look at it, you go, what is business income? Uh, business income is uh, net income before tax. What's continuing operating expenses? Well, if you've got a covered peril and a covered loss at a location, those are what are those that are continuing? Rental value has a definition. Extra expense has a definition. Extended business income has a definition. Civil authority has definitions. And then the dependent or contingent property is defined by the endorsements that get out, put onto the policy. So you're going to have 
multiple layers that have to be looked at. And it's not just this quick news gathering item. I'm suing travelers, as the uh, Garrigus Law Firm said down in uh, Los Angeles. I'm suing them because I have a business interruption thing. And it turns out the travelers form, there was a business income form. And travelers quickly filed a declaration of action against them and saying, you don't have coverage and we're going to go to a deck action to define, do you have it on those terms? That's going to be a precise type of thing that's going to take place. So there's this perception on a broad basis that everybody has business interruption and they don't. It's going to be defined terms that are going to dictate the aspects of the coverage as well as the endorsements. So that brought us into that world of called the reasonable expectation doctrine. And this is where we're getting the disconnect between perception and perception and reality. Uh, perception is I've got business interruption. Reality is no, you've got business income with extra expense. And reasonable expectation doctrine basically says, here's how we interpret policies. If there's ambiguity in the insurance contract, in other words, there's some plausible or competing interpretation of the policy term, then if that ambiguity exists, then the party could say, I reasonably expected I had this coverage. And based on that, they would grant coverage. So it has to have some kind of ambiguity. So that's what the plaintiff's bar is going to have to show. Plaintiff's bar is going to have to come forward and show there was a plausible competing interpretation of coverage. And so the doctrine really is defined, and this came out of a decision between DEFCON International and Reliance. It applies only when a term in a policy is ambiguous and the insured may not use it to obtain coverage when plain language of an exclusion clearly places an injury beyond the policy scope. The reasonable perception doctrine or the reasonable expectation doctrine is not a rule granting substantive rights to an insured when there is no doubt as to the meaning of the policy language. Therefore, what I anticipate uh, is that most insurance companies are going to come back after they've done their due diligence and done their investigation. They're going to say the terms are clear. Uh, the exclusion was clear. We had a a virus exclusion. We had a communicable disease exclusion. We had an exclusion for ordinance or law. We had an exclusion for pollution. And they'll come back and say, those are pretty clear terms and saying there was no intent to cover it. Therefore, there's no coverage for the physical injury to that situation. That's a plausible uh, interpretation of the insurance company. And then the others are going to come back and say, well, no, no, that's not plausible. And that gets into it. So all states have what we call the reasonable expectation doctrine. And this language uh, basically puts out there a high hurdle for the plaintiff's bar that they have to prove ambiguity. They have to prove that it is, uh, and it can't be just a fervent hope that there's coverage just because we have an economic condition. That's not the key issue here. You have to prove uh, that the terms are ambiguous. If the terms are clear and unambiguous, and this has been handled by every state, uh, there will be no coverage, and that is another item. But remember, this all goes through a process of you have to file the claim, got to file the legal action after this. And this may not be resolved for years in terms of what's going to be approached on that one. And in fact, in Pennsylvania, they just pushed everything back down to the state court, not to the federal court, and said, we're not going to do that. So what we find, it's if the insured's reasonable expectations 
are not a trump. They cannot go over unambiguous policy language. If it's clear and concise, uh, you can't go into it. Now, granted, it's a contract of adhesion where there's an unfair bargaining position, but they didn't know to argue about it prior to the loss. Now they have this pandemic and now they're saying, what well, should apply? I, I've always expected that. Well, that's you cannot have uh, that element of feeling like it should be covered. The issue is the language speaks for itself. That's the main trigger. And in business income, we know that the main trigger is direct physical loss to the insured property at a described location. That threshold a direct physical loss does create some problems for plaintiff's bar. There are some arguments that we're going to talk about called the public space to try to trigger civil authority, try to trigger loss of rents as a tangible property loss and non-payment of physical loss elements that fall into that. Net income earned or would have been earned should be considered tangible property and the lack of income because of the physical shutdown is a physical loss. These are the arguments that are going to come out and saying, well, that means that the policy is not clear and that the reasonable expectations by the uh, party who is filing for that should get the coverage. That's why we're going to say, hey, the perception between reality and what is is going to be very significant on that. Also, there's going to be an argument beyond the reasonable doctrine, and that's the doctrine of reasonable interpretation. Some states will use this. The key is always going back to the four corners of the policy. What does it say? Uh, and is it plain and it has no inconsistency? And it's been consistent in how the insurance company has applied it over the years. Um, do they apply business income definition of net income before tax the same way? Did they apply the definition of continuing operating expenses the same way? Did they continue to follow the definition of net physical damage or having some physical damage. And so at that time of the intervention and when it takes place, basically it's going to be, was it reasonable interpretation by the insurance company? And the answer is going to be yes in most instances. But again, we don't know what everybody's coverage form had on it and everything. We know that since 2006, there's been a virus exclusion that's been out there on the on the standardized coverage forms. Does every form have that? And I can't answer that question because it's going to be a case-by-case -case situation. And another element that's going to raise, and you're going to hear these arguments, is called the doctrine of concurrent causation. And this goes back to the days of early uh, in the 70s in California and such not, which was the concurrent causation exclusions in the who is insured um, and the causes of loss form. And in the causes of loss form, we have uh, some very specific concurrent causation lengths, which, which we call absolute exclusions. And they came about because of decisions that occurred of a flood loss and of an earthquake loss. The one I remember most about that in the 80s was the Coalinga case. Uh, in Coalinga, California, there was an earthquake and there were policies that had an earthquake exclusion. Uh, the argument by the plaintiff's bar at that time was, was there was no earthquake. We had a tectonic plate shift, and tectonic plate shift was not excluded under the policy. Well, subsequently to those decisions, we now have a concurrent causation exclusion in the cause of loss forms that says earth movement, and earth movement includes tectonic plate shift. So these doctrine of concurrent causation is you've got to try to find some other cause that's not specifically excluded that triggers triggers the coverage, therefore we can bring that in. So what we're finding is 
to combat the thinking of a communicable disease exclusionary endorsement, they're going to try to figure out, well, we had this peril over here, a zoning decision or a board uh, closure decision, which is covered because it's not excluded. Therefore, even though you got the communicable disease endorsement, we're going to cover that. That is not going to be allowed. And so that's going to be one of the arguments that's going to come at us about the issue of governmental action under a civil authority. So you've got three primary legal doctrines that are going to come through the arguments, and you're going to hear a lot of noise about it. You're going to hear about the reasonable interpretation, reasonable expectation, and the doctrine of concurrent causation as methods of saying, this is how we're going to win this case. We have plaintiff's bar that's out there advertising right now and saying, hey, we can bitch you money. We can win your money on that. They have no idea what the causal loss form is. It's part of the Attorney Full Employment Act. And it's a wrongful approach as we go into this. So I've just given you my thought process on that. I have a bias. I just thought I'd let you. I think, I think, but you did a wonderful job of explaining that. I think that, I think that's brilliant. That concludes part one of this COVID-19 conversations podcast. To access part two, locate it on your favorite podcast app or visit scic.com forward slash COVID-19-conversations. I'm your host, Mitch Dunford, and thank you for listening.